Pray with me. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would be near us, building us up, and calling us to be conformed to the image of Christ. I pray, Lord, though we are all sinful people, that you would break through our sin and speak the truth to us. I pray, Lord, that though I am a sinful person, that you might build me up in the grace of Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit let me speak only what is true and good. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's just admit up front, when you read this story, I think the first thing that strikes most of us is that it's sort of every parent's worst nightmare. Like if you have ever had a child get lost at a store or just that frantic feeling where you don't know where to find them, you probably felt that a little bit in this story. I remember there was a point a few years ago when Silas was like two and he was playing in the living room and then suddenly he wasn't there and we couldn't find him and we're looking all through the house and finally we we go outside and look around and see way down the street walking into the street thankfully there were no cars is our little two-year-old and it turns out he had been watching and figured out how to open doors and this was the first time he did it and it was the front door which he shut after himself and just went ahead and, and went walking off and i remember that that terror that we felt in that moment and was kind of remembering that again as we read this story, we can imagine Mary and Joseph feeling that way, and we resonate with that. That said, that is not the point of this story. This is not just a story about that time that the boy Jesus got lost. There's something going on here that we're supposed to learn. But to get there, first we need to kind of walk through this story, and so we're going to do that, and then we're going to talk about what it means for us. All right, so let's start at the beginning of our text. In verse 41, Now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So here's the deal. Every year in Jerusalem, there are three great feasts. There is the Feast of Passover, and there is Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And these three feasts you can read about back in the book of Exodus. But by Jesus' day, Jews were scattered all over the world. And so um, they couldn't come to all three of these feasts. But observant Jews would try every year to make it to Jerusalem for one of these three times of feasting. And for Mary and Joseph, who were those kinds of observant Jews, the feast that they go to every year was apparently the Feast of Passover. So they go up to Jerusalem for Passover, and Jesus goes with them. And he is 12 years old, which in Jewish society at this time means that he is sort of a child on the cusp of adulthood. Uh, when, when a Jewish boy turned 13, they would be welcomed in as kind of a full religious member of the community. If you have Jewish friends today and you've ever been to a bar mitzvah, that is actually what that is celebrating. So Jesus is almost to that point. This is his last year going to celebrate Passover as a child instead of what is considered kind of a man in this culture. But they go up to celebrate. And then we fast forward to after Passover in verse 43. It says, when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents did not know it, but supposed him to be in the group. They went a day's journey. Now, just to be clear, Mary and Joseph are not bad parents in this story. They are maybe not helicopter parents in the modern sense of the word. But because these three feasts were times when all these people were coming to Jerusalem, they're traveling with hundreds of people, probably dozens of children, 
very likely some relatives or others like that. And so they're going up in this big group to Jerusalem, and Jesus is 12 years old, and so they just assume, oh, he's not here, but he's just probably playing with these other kids. Until they probably get ready for bed that night, and Jesus doesn't come back. They don't see him for dinner, and they start to think, oh, no. They have that sinking feeling in their guts. Oh, no. That's where we resonate with them. Keep reading. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So first they looked through the caravan and checked in with everyone they knew to see if they had seen Jesus. And when they realized that he isn't here, they load up and leave the group and travel back to Jerusalem to try to find him. And this is the point, again, where we are kind of cringing if we have children, because we can imagine this happening and the anxiety and the fear that Mary and Joseph feel. And finally, they find Jesus. In verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So after three days, they find Jesus. Probably this means sort of like on the third day, they go a day out of Jerusalem, takes them a day to get back, and then on the third day, they find Jesus. And during the time of Passover, surrounding it, it was common for Jewish rabbis to sit in the temple court and have these kind of public debates and teaching times about the law. And so Jesus apparently is sitting there, listening and asking questions. And he's doing it in a way that communicates this deep understanding of scripture. Something to consider here. How did Jesus have this great understanding of the word of God? I think our instinct is to say when we read these stories, well, you know, Jesus is God, and so he just knew that stuff. But I think Luke wants us to understand that that's not actually the case, at least not exactly. In the first place, notice Jesus is not just giving all the answers. He's listening and asking questions. He is here to learn about God's word. And the bookends of this story both stress that Jesus grew over time, including in his understanding of God. In verse 40 from last week, it says that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That word wisdom does not just it doesn't mean something opposed to knowledge or like street smarts. It includes knowledge and learning and then an understanding of how to apply that to your life. That's wisdom. And Jesus is growing and increasing in that. So how did Jesus come to have this deep understanding of God's word? Well, a big part of the answer is probably by studying God's word, just like any of us would have. That he studied and dug into it from the youngest age. And that was how he got this insight. In fact, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but how did Jesus know that he was the Messiah? Again, we're tempted to just say, well, you know, he was God. But again, a big part of the answer is probably that he studied scriptures and figured it out. Yes, again, he did have the supernatural testimony of the Spirit we're going to see in the next verse and power and stuff. But I think we should assume that at least part of Jesus' understanding of his mission came from his diligent study of God's word. And that's why in his ministry, when he's talking with the Pharisees, he says almost in disbelief, haven't you read the word of God? Don't you know what it says? Because his assumption is that actually anyone who really studied God's word in connection and relationship with God would reach the same conclusions. 
Let me just pause for a minute on that, try to explain the big idea behind that, because it's important in how we understand Jesus. As Christians over the centuries wrestled with and thought to summarize how Scripture portrays Jesus, they kind of summarized it like this, and this is based on the Chalcedonian Creed and other places, and understand this is an attempt by the church to just take all the things we see about Jesus in Scripture and account for them together. But here's what they say. They say, one, Jesus is truly God and truly a human being. He is the Son, a member of the Trinity, very God of very God, but he is also truly human, like us in all things except for sin. So Jesus has a human body and a human mind and a human soul, just like you and me. We summarize that as saying that Jesus is one person with two natures. One person with two natures. So he's one person, which means that his godness and his humanness, they're not divided. It's not like he's in this like tug of war between being God and being a human being. He's one person, but he re remains as a person with two natures. They don't change each other. And that's where we often get the wrong idea. Because Jesus had a human mind, he experienced learning and growth just like we do. Yes, he is also divine, and part of how he can do that is that in the incarnation he chooses to lay aside uh, his, some of that divine knowledge that he has. But the boy Jesus learned the faith just like our children do. His parents taught it to him, and as he grew up, he started to learn and study it for himself. Now we're going to come back to that idea in a minute, and you'll see why it matters. But here's what I want us to understand up front here. Jesus is truly a human being. He is not just God sort of wearing a person suit, which is the way I think that many of us talk about him. He's not like an android or a replicant or something from science fiction. He was just as human as you were or I was in terms of growth and wisdom and all of it. And he's also God. With that said, let's get back to the story. Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple, learning from and talking with the rabbis and amazing everyone with his insight. And then in verse 48, we read, his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So mama's not happy, first of all. She kind of sounds pretty ticked off. And again, we get that. She's been worried sick. Here's Jesus just sitting at the temple. People seem to have this idea that since Jesus was sinless, it must have been easy to parent him, that he must have been this perfect child and therefore a perfect pleasure to parent. And that is not true. In the first place, I mean, when you're a sinner, parenting a sinless child is actually probably pretty brutal. I mean, imagine having a child that is more diligent in the things of God than you are and how that would mess with your head. But more than that, a lot of the challenges of parenting are not about sin. I mean, think about teaching your kid to ride a bike. Have you done that? I mean, some kids, they take to it immediately, but others, I mean, I'm glad that nobody was listening in on my internal monologue as I was teaching some of our children how to ride a bike because it's frustrating. And Mary and Joseph would have experienced all of those normal things with Jesus because, again, he was truly a human being and grew up in the ways human beings grow. It isn't sin when a toddler goes teetering towards the stairs or out the front door and, um, and you have to run after them to stop them. It isn't sin when a teenager is learning how to drive and 
they almost kill you repeatedly. They would have experienced that kind of growth in Jesus. Anyway, Mary and Joseph, though, are frustrated. But then here is Jesus' response in verse 49. And listen, in many ways, this is the key verse, the climax of the story. So pay attention. Jesus says to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So first, Jesus seems surprised that Mary and Joseph didn't think to immediately go to the temple. All through his ministry, we see Jesus's family struggle with who he is. They do ultimately come to embrace him as the Messiah and Savior. In fact, James, one of Jesus's brothers, ends up leading the church in Jerusalem, which is just think about what it would take for you to become so convinced that your brother was God that you would be a leader in the church and suffer persecution and martyrdom for it. But, but anyway, Jesus is, um, is surprised by his family's struggle here. And then Jesus talks about my father's house. That phrase is actually really important to how we think about Jesus. See, Israel always saw God as a father, and God portrays himself in the prophets as a father. That's not something new with Jesus. But whenever they would talk about it, it was always corporately. It was always our father. God is our father. When Jesus talks about God as my father, singular, there's really no parallel to that anywhere in ancient Jewish writings. Um, Jesus is communicating this special relationship that already as a 12-year-old boy, he understands himself having with God. And then he says, I must be here. So he's saying it's necessary. The most important thing to Jesus already is to be in the presence of God, learning about him, and preparing to go forth on his mission. Now Mary and Joseph, they don't get it. Verse 50, it says, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Like we said, Jesus' family struggles to understand who he is and what he's come to do. But then Jesus returns to them in Naz to Nazareth in verse 51. It says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So Jesus returns to Nazareth with his parents, and Luke makes sure to stress that he was submissive to them, which is to say, if we only had this story without that clarification, we might see Jesus as actually kind of being disobedient to his family, and Luke is trying to make clear that that is not the case. Children are called to obey and honor their parents, and Jesus did that. And then Mary treasures up these things in her heart. Luke said this same thing back in verse 19. And that's probably in part because Mary's the one who told him this story. I mean, she's one of the eyewitnesses that he interviewed as he compiled this account of the life of Jesus. But Luke is also doing it to stress that Jesus, from his birth and through his childhood, was the Son of God. There's this idea some people have early on in the church that says that, well, Jesus sort of became the Son of God at some point later in his life. But all through these accounts, with his birth and now, Jesus, Luke is trying to stress that, no, Jesus was from the beginning the Messiah, the Son of God. He is my father to Jesus in a special way. So Jesus returns and lives with his family. And then, like we already read, it says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And here's the other thing we need to realize about that verse. That verse covers something like 18 years. Jesus is around 30 when he begins his ministry. And this story offers us one tiny glimpse into his first 30 years. But Jesus 
is living as the Son of God, the Messiah, for 30 years without the world knowing it, without going and doing things. And God is pleased with him in those years, and he is being faithful in those years as a child, as a young adult, as a carpenter providing for his family. It is that image of Jesus that I want us to have in our minds, and then I want to apply it to our lives. I want to suggest, as we think about that story, that it's supposed to teach us two things, that Jesus redeems our humanity and that Jesus transforms our humanity. Our humanity is redeemed and transformed by Jesus. First, in Jesus, our humanity is redeemed. Our ordinary, everyday humanity is made great. Here's what I mean. We're going to talk about it more next week. But in chapter 3, we see Jesus baptized by John the Baptist. And when he's baptized, this is what happens. It says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So God declares over Jesus that he loves him and that he is pleased with the life that Jesus has lived. What has Jesus done at that point? Like we said, from the perspective of the world, not much. He hasn't started his public ministry. He hasn't died for our sins or risen again for our salvation. But God already says over him, I am pleased with you. Jesus was fully human and lived a fully human life. He grew up as a human being and lived faithfully as a human being and worked and was part of a family and did all the things that a human being does. And God was pleased with him for doing that. We can slip into this trap where we think that we have to be something other than human or more than human for God to be pleased with us. That we have to do extraordinary things or unusually religious things. We think that the people God is pleased with are like pastors, which I guess is great for me in some ways, or missionaries, or they start nonprofits or become monks or do some extraordinary stuff for God. And that is not true. God designed us to be human beings, and the main way he is glorified us, in us is when we faithfully live as ordinary human beings. We don't have to do great things for God. He's delighted when we do ordinary things faithfully. And Jesus is meant to be a picture in this story of that kind of ordinary, redeemed humanity. We should look at each ordinary part of our lives and seek to be faithful in it. Or to put a different spin on it, we should ask, how would Jesus live this part of his life as a perfect human being? How would Jesus live out his humanity here? And then we should do that. So kids, Jesus was a faithful child. He was obedient to his parents. He sought to study the scriptures and come to know and understand God for himself. He did the work of growing in stature and wisdom, which means things like school and studying. Jesus faithfully lived as a child, and God was pleased with him as he did it, which means that if you are a young person, you don't have to wait till you grow up to, to do what God wants you to do or to live as a Christian, that right now, God is calling you to do those things, and he delights when you do them. And the same is true for us as adults. When you work hard at your job and do it well, God is pleased by that. When you are a good neighbor, giving simple, practical help to the people around you, God is pleased by that. When you love your family well, if you're a parent, if you love your children well, if you're married, if you love your spouse well, if you have parents or siblings, if you love them well, 
God is pleased as you do that. There's a quote attributed to Mother Teresa, the Catholic missionary to the poor in India, where she said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And that's true, but I'd go even further. I would say that actually doing small things with, lo- with great love is what great faithfulness usually looks like. Being human in the way that God calls us to be, being faithful in that ordinariness. Jesus redeems our humanity. He shows us what it means to be truly human, and he shows us that God is pleased with that. But at the same time, Jesus also transforms our humanity. He shows us that while being ordinary is good and pleasing to God, the way our world thinks about what is ordinary is problematic and has to be reoriented. That's the point of this climactic moment in this story when we see the difference between Mary and Joseph's thinking and Jesus's. Let's read it again. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There are two contrasts that we're supposed to see in these verses. Two contrasts. One of duty and one of identity. First, Mary is clearly thinking about Jesus' duty primarily in terms of his duty to them as his parents. She says, son, why have you treated us this way? Why did you do this to us? Jesus is clearly thinking of his duty primarily in terms of God. I have to be here, he says, in my father's house. This is what's more important. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't owe certain duties to his parents. He does. And as Luke says at the end of our passage, he grows up and is submissive to them. But Jesus clearly understands that that duty is secondary and that there is a greater duty on his life, a duty to God. And that's because of this contrast in identity. Jesus and Mary are thinking differently about his identity. Look at her question again. She says, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Your father and I. And then Jesus responds, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? We're supposed to see a contrast there in terms of the word father. Maybe even a gentle rebuke on the part of the child Jesus. Joseph was Jesus's earthly father, certainly. And Jesus respected him as such. And he is praised in these passages for that. But Jesus is saying, remember who my true father is. Why is it surprising that I am in my father's house? Jesus is viewing his identity differently than Mary. Of course, some of that question of identity is unique to Jesus. He is uniquely the true son of God, but it is also something that's real for us as followers of Jesus. As we become his disciples, and as we are adopted into God's family by God's grace, that change in identity is supposed to happen to you and me. Later on in Luke, we're going to see Jesus make this very challenging statement in the midst of a very challenging set of statements. But he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is using figurative language. He's not literally saying to hate all those people. After all, he would call us to love them. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, In your world... Your identity can rest on all kinds of things. And one of the main sources of identity in Jesus' world, and still in ours, is our family. 
our parents, our spouses, our children, that can be a huge source of identity. And Jesus is saying that you have to understand that if you follow me, all of those other sources of identity can be threats to following me. They can keep you from following me. Which, that's hard. So look, those things have a good place within the context of our identity in Christ. We can be faithful children and spouses and parents within the context of our identity in Christ. But it is our identity in Jesus, it is our Heavenly Father, that is meant to ultimately define us. And when we get confused about that, it can lead to problems. And that's the idea of transformed humanity. Jesus affirms the ordinary, everyday nature of humanity. We, have not, we don't have to like become monks or missionaries in order for God to be pleased with us. But he also challenges the fundamental nature of our humanity, calling us to have it transformed with a new identity in him, carrying out new duties for God. Jesus challenges our humanity even as he affirms it. Let me try to explain the relationship of those things in three steps. I think this can be confusing to us, so let me explain it in three steps. One, Christianity is not primarily about doing new things. It is not primarily about doing new things. Now, absolutely, if you become a Christian, there are certain religious things that you're going to do that you wouldn't have before as a non-Christian. You would start praying, start engaging with Scripture. You would become involved with the local church and serve God there. There are certain new things you would do. But those are not what Christianity is primarily about. We're supposed to be engaged in everything else too. In the way we live, the way we talk, the way we work, the way we do family and friendships, all of that is what Christianity is aimed at. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So Christianity is not primarily about doing new things, but two, Christianity is primarily about doing things for new reasons. It is about doing things for new reasons. We do it to the glory of God. We have a whole new identity, a whole new purpose, a new father. Our reasons for living are transformed. The reason I work is now because I am working for the Lord. The reason I parent or love my spouse or honor my parents is because I am serving the Lord. And so as a result, three, Christianity will change some of what we do and how we do it. That's the key thing to understand. We will do the same things, but they will also be different. If we are living for the glory of God, there will be these little alterations to what we are doing and how we're doing it, even though we're doing the same human things that everyone else does. I used to manage a bunch of retail employees earlier in my life. And they were doing the same basic things, right? They all had the same kind of job, stocking shelves, cashiering, helping customers. But the reasons they were doing it were different. Some of them, a decent chunk of them in that retail world were doing it because they were like in college and wanted money to have fun on the weekends. But then another group of them were also in college, but they were doing, working in order to pay tuition and room and board. And still others weren't students but it instead arrived at a point in life where they were married or had kids. And the reasons that each of those types of employees were working were different. And as a result, they worked in really different ways. The people providing for families or paying tuitions tended to work much harder and much more diligently than the people who just wanted some beer money for this weekend. 
And I remember, in fact, watching a couple of people who started off as college students and didn't really have any responsibilities. They actually stayed there for some years and ended up, you know, graduating from college and getting married and, and moving forward. And you could watch the way they worked change as their reasons change. Christianity is supposed to do that to every part of our lives. So why are we saying all of this? What does this mean for us? I think we often fall into two traps, two traps about how we think about Christianity that both destroy our faithfulness. The first trap is what I'm going to call the too narrow trap. The too narrow trap. We fail to understand that Jesus is about redeeming all of our humanity. And so we apply Christianity only to certain parts of our lives. We divide our lives into the Christian parts and the human parts, rather than recognizing that Christianity is supposed to affect everything. And the second trap is the too normal trap, the too normal trap, which is to say we fail to recognize that every part of our lives is meant to be transformed. We get a new identity, and that changes the reasons that we do things and the ways in which we do them. That is the too normal trap, that the world, while we are human in a way that is recognizable to it, if we let it define our humanity, will not lead us into what it means to live like a Christian. And so what I want to invite you to do this week is just think about those two traps, think about your life, and ask whether there are ways that you fall into them. Is your view of Christianity too narrow? When you think about serving Jesus, what do you think about? Do you only think about the obvious religious things? Do you realize that Jesus is redeeming every part of your life? That God is delighted in your work as an employee, as a parent, as a friend, when you're cooking dinner or mowing the lawn just as much as when you are praying or sharing the gospel? Do you realize that Christianity is that broad? That's the first question. And then the second is, is your view of Christianity too normal? Have you just assumed that the way the world does things is correct? Or have you let Jesus challenge and influence each of those areas of your life? I mean, have you wrestled with what it means that at your work, as a parent, in your friendships, when you're cooking dinner, that in all of those things, you're meant to be living for the glory of God in a way that is faithful to him? And have you asked how that would change how you do those things? As we wrestle with those questions, here's the beautiful hope. That is actually how we come to be more like Jesus. We stressed earlier that reality that Jesus was truly and fully human. And the reason we need to understand that is because Jesus then represents to us true humanity. And he redefines for us true humanity. Every moment of every day is an opportunity to become more like Jesus. And as we take those opportunities, our whole lives begin to change in beautiful and powerful ways. Let's pray. Father God, I give you thanks that you have come to redeem our humanity in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, it is such a blessing to walk in fellowship with you as our Father, 
through the ordinary everydayness of our world, Lord, to know that you are there with us as we gather around dinner tables, as we work in our yards, as we move through our lives, Lord. I am just so grateful that you bless us and meet us and love us and carry us through each of those tasks. Lord, I pray that as you do that, so we would also recognize that we are called to live in new ways in that. Lord, that we might seek to be faithful to you in those areas of lives, to not let the world define us, but rather let us be defined by the true humanity of Jesus, that we might be new creations in him. He is our second Adam. He is our humanity restored. May we learn from him what it means to follow you. And Father, I pray as we do that, that we might then be transformative influences in the world. God, I give you thanks for the reality that as we live to be more like Jesus, just as he changed the world and changed those he met, so can we. I pray that we might be faithful in that calling and that we might grow up more and more into our head, Jesus Christ. Pray all of this in his great name. Amen. Now, friends, join me in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Pray. 